Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Fran Baganow, who is a professor of astrophysical and planetary sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder, and a researcher in the fields of space plasmas and planetary magnetospheres. Her career spans involvement in the exploration of the outer solar system with NASA's Voyager, Galileo, New Horizons, and Juno missions. Welcome, Fran. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I want to start with Pluto. Um, uh, the, the, you have a paper uh, entitled Pluto's Interaction with its Space Environment, Solar Wind, Energetic Particles, and Dust. Uh, Pluto, uh, I guess, uh, cold and probably sad, having been demoted <laughs> from, from planetary... Uh, wait, planetary wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Dwarf people are people. Dwarf planets are planets. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, but, but you know, a uh, little bit of a demotion at the very least. Um, but uh, it is way out there, uh, and it is sort of a strange world. So we sent a mission that you are intimately involved with called New Horizons, uh, left the Earth around, I believe, 2015. Is that right? No, I left Earth um, <laughs> Oh, that is a fl- flyby. 2006. It's okay. a nine-year f- uh, flight out there. Nine-year flight. Yeah, hopefully it's not. Um, it's first class. Yes. Um, <laughs> so nine-year nine-year flight. And uh, so the, the flyby, uh, the first flyby, I guess, was in 2015. And it is still around Pluto or it is uh, taken off from there? No, no, no. Um, okay. We were moving too fast and Pluto... We didn't have the fuel to to go into orbit around Pluto, and Pluto is very small, so yeah. difficult to get captured. Uh, we went on um, straight past Pluto. Uh, it was just a four-hour flyby, and then um, we went on to visit another a Kuiper Belt object, and uh, continuing to go out into the in the outer solar system. Okay. Do we still have contact with uh, Voyager Two? Absolutely. 
Voyager 2, actually, it's just, it's very interesting that uh, we have to use the largest radio telescopes on the ground, radio Mm. receivers on the ground, the Deep Space Network. And they just uh, did a 40-year upgrade or or, uh, maintenance of the biggest telescope. So they had actually been out of communication with Voyager 2 for a few months, but I've heard Mm. they're back talking to Voyager 2 again. Um, with the telescope out in California. So, um, yes, this is uh, pretty pretty impressive that you need a 200-foot dish, to 70-meter dish to, to communicate with these uh, little spacecraft way the heck out there. Yeah, but what's, a, what's an amazing engineering accomplishment? Um, it's a, so uh, Voyager 2, I don't have my time timelines right. So when did Voyager 2 take off? From the, from Voyager us? 2 and Voyager 1 were launched in um, September of 20, uh, sorry, September of 1977. Okay, 1977. Okay. And so I remember uh, I was in Atlanta. I have faint memories in, in early 90s. There was a lot of excitement. Uh, was that then we got the first data? So... The first observations that Voyager took were at Jupiter in 1979 and then went on to Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And Voyager 2 flew past Neptune in uh, September of 1989. Uh, Okay, okay. So the 90s, probably what you got you excited in the 90s was that we turned back after flying past uh, Neptune to look Uh. at Earth. (laughs) <laughs> and so the picture, this was Carl Sagan's great idea, was right. to look back at what we called the blue dot. And it was yeah. a beautiful image that has the Earth and the other planets of the solar system. Right. Um, but this vision was of this small blue dot uh, in space. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, so 1970s technology, and it still, it, it keeps going, and it is an amazing Amazing thing to say to, to see, um, and we still have contact with it. Uh, New Horizons, uh, much later, uh, obviously, as you said, two thousand six, um, and this was this was a mission really targeting Pluto and its moons, right? Correct. And so, so what was sort of the, the objectives of the mission when we set off? So, when we flew past Neptune with Voyager in nineteen. 19- 89, Alan Stern came to me. He was a student then at the University of Colorado. I was teaching my first class. And uh, he said, "After Pluto, what do we do after Voyager? Let's go to Pluto. We have to go to Pluto. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, piddly little Pluto, who cares about Pluto? Right. But what was interesting is he convinced me that it would be interesting to go to Pluto. But more importantly... Uh, we realized that soon after then, we started detecting lots of objects in the outer solar system around the orbit of Pluto, out at about um, 30 to 50 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So the Mm. Earth orbits at what we call one astronomical unit from the Sun. And these objects are 30 to 50 astronomical units. And these objects were, everybody started saying, what are they, what's going on out there? This is like an asteroid belt that is out there beyond the orbit of Neptune. And so 
we realized that Pluto was just the biggest of a whole family of objects. Yeah. You said what we call Kuiper Belt? This is the Kuiper Belt. It was proposed okay. by Gerald Kuiper, uh, yeah. an astronomer, an, a Dutch astronomer living in America. And uh, just as the Oort cloud is named after um, Oort, who was a Dutch astronomer living in America. And so there is this idea that we, we really, there's more to the solar system. And there's a key component of formation of the solar system that is being held by these objects out there. How did they get scattered out there? What process of solar system formation leads to a belt of icy objects in the outer solar system? So it developed much more scientific importance than just, oh, poor little Pluto, let's go look at poor little Pluto. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was much more about the science. Right. Do we have an estimate of, uh, clearly we cannot see everything uh, in that region, but do we have a rough estimate of how many bodies we estimate to be in that, in that arena? Well, there are something on the order of a few thousand that are comparable in size to Pluto. Um, okay. Once you get down into, you know, at some point you have to say, when, when does something get so small that it's not really a body, it's just a, a chunk of chunk of rock or a a, 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 a bit of dust you know <laughs> yeah, the smaller right, you right. go the many more there are of them but in in, yeah. in comparable in order of magnitude same sort of factor of 10 size of pluto um there are a few thousand and uh, that is uh, i would imagine that's unusual right so if you, if you take a distribution of size all those hundred bodies would be all the way to the right well, um, okay, so so indeed there tends to be a power law distribution and you have yeah. uh, fewer larger objects. So there's just, you know, Pluto is the largest and there's Aries and a couple of others that are comparable. And then, you know, you get smaller and there's much more of those and so on and so forth. So indeed you get to the smaller objects, there's many more of them. Yeah, and so, so Pluto is still is the largest. It is the king of the Kuiper Belt. Just. <laughs> just about so what, what, what is the what is the second uh, the challenger? second one is eris um okay. and i don't know the difference between them i'm terribly sorry the the but uh it's just slightly smaller but they're comparable okay. they're, i mean you know i think they're both very interesting they have you know um they seem to have different spectral signatures maybe not the same one i don't think eris has an atmosphere there are all sorts of things that would be interesting to go look at these other Kuiper Belt objects and compare them. I think just like our asteroids, they're all very different and uh, it would be interesting to go and explore more of them. And, and Pluto interestingly has number of moons as well, right? Yes. I mean, this is really bizarre that yeah. um, uh, just as we were launching this, the, the we, we knew there was one large moon um, called um, Sharon that was discovered back in the 70s. And it's actually not too desperately different from the size of, of Pluto. And they yeah. orbit each other. Uh, so it's like a double, uh, double planet system and right. uh, around a point that's outside Pluto. And so um, we knew about those for a long time. But then just as we were about to launch um, the the New Horizons mission to Pluto, we discovered with Hubble Space Telescope, there were four small little um, objects that uh, were orbiting Pluto. And um, 
So we now had six objects to go explore and we flew through the system and took pictures of these small objects yeah. and found out really strange that they are spinning like crazy. So, you know, they, they <laughs> yeah. orbit around Pluto further than, than Sharon. And they yeah. are these small chunks of ice that are spinning around. One of them spins 90 times in an orbit. So, you know, mm. uh, our, our moon spins once in an orbit. So it's very strange to have this um, small object spinning around. So, you know, there's a big question of these debris that were made during the formation of um, when, when Sharon maybe collided with Pluto to get into its orbit where it is now. Did Was some of this debris left over? Why is it still spinning? You know, mm. all of these sort of things have got uh, people going back to the drawing board to try and work out what, what's going on. How did this system form? Yeah, so so I want to get into the composition of Pluto, but before we get there, I remember, uh, friend, the, so this hypothesis of Planet Nine, was it created by some sort of strange movement of, of uh, bodies in the Kuiper Belt, or that's different? So there's a question about whether there's another large object well beyond the Kuiper Belt that yeah. is sort of um, what's the right word that's pushing around the Kuiper belt mm. and making it orient in a certain way and it hasn't been detected yeah. and there are now other theories that say well you can explain the orbits of the Kuiper belt without needing a distant object mm. and so um, this is an open question. There could well be objects out there beyond large objects, planetary size objects out there beyond, um, but you don't necessarily need them and it hasn't been detected. So yeah. the, 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 it's actually worth telling this little story, if you don't mind. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely, yeah. That when we started thinking about um, the Kuiper Belt and how it got to be there. It was around the same sort of time that astronomers were looking at other stars and finding objects around other stars. In particular, they were finding large objects, larger than uh, Jupiter, which is 10 times the size of the Earth, and they were finding these big gas planets very close to the star. And every, everybody said, that doesn't make sense. You have to make gas giants, at least this was the theory of the time and still continues to be our current theory. You make gas giants by having a lot of ice balls, big snowballs. I mean, snowballs about 20 times the mass of the Earth oh, wow. that yeah. form beyond the ice line, which is well beyond the asteroid belt, where hmm. ice could, could freeze to, to, um, to warm closer to the star where we are here. And so then you pull in hydrogen, of which there's abundance, large amount. It's the most abundant element in the universe. And so you make these big gas giants out near where Jupiter is right now. So what yeah. were these big Jupiters doing in close to the star? And so people began mm. to come up with ideas of planet migration. That is, you mm. could make a Jupiter out where Jupiter is now in our solar system. But somehow, it maybe there was extra gas left 
in the uh, formation disk, which caused it mm. to drag and then end up close to the star. So mm. this got everybody thinking about migration of planets. Right. And so then at the, around the same time, people realized that it's really hard to make Uranus and Neptune where they are right now because they mm. move so slowly out far away from the, from the sun that they would be moving through the, the uh, big disk of material from which the planets were formed too slowly. So then came an idea. What if you had Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune all forming sort of pretty much where Jupiter and Saturn are now in that region of the solar system? So five to yeah. ten times the distance uh, from the sun as the Earth. So five to ten astronomical units. And then they, somehow they got into uh, a resonance with Jupiter, and Jupiter sort of started kicking out Uranus and mm. Neptune. And as Uranus and Neptune migrated out through the outer solar system, they scattered the icy objects that were in the outer solar system. Some of them were scattered in to form the water that would be delivered to the Earth to make our ocean. And mm. some of them would be scattered out to make the Kuiper Belt. So this idea of planetary migration, which was sort of provoked by detection of stars around planets around other stars, got us thinking about formation of the Kuiper belt, migration of Uranus and Neptune. And uh, this now is our current a major uh, idea, component of our ideas about formation of our solar system. So it's migration away from uh, the Sun and, the, and Jupiter. For the case away. of, of um, Uranus yeah. and Neptune, uh, because yeah. what may have provoked that was a resonance, an orbital resonance with Jupiter that sort of kicked them out. On the other hand, right. if, you, if the dust and gases of the solar nebula from which the planets formed stayed a little longer, didn't get blown away by an active star or active Sun, mm -hmm. If you left that d gas around, then you'd have a lot of drag and the planets would move inwards, right? So there's mm. a combination of factors involved here, um, right, which would lead right. to different kinds of solar systems. And so that's why it's very interesting to look at all the different solar systems that we now have. There's several thousand of them out that we can see and see that they have very different architectures. Our solar hmm. system is not necessarily typical. Right, right, yeah, and, and because we don't we don't know the initial conditions, uh, initial initial parameters, it's difficult to simulate that. Right, I would imagine. Right, yeah, and so if uh, if Planet Nine were to exist, how far uh, is the hypothesis? Well, I think they're talking something like three hundred astronomical units. So that you know, Pluto yeah. is a is um, goes between thirty and 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 uh, forty five. So you know, many times further than Pluto. The Kuiper Belt. We don't know right. the edge of the Kuiper Belt, but it's probably somewhere around fifty astronomical units. Yeah. So, so much further out. clearly, the much much further out. The the reflectivity of that is is going to be really really low. So it'll be tough to find. I also heard something like some people are speculating that could be a small black hole. Oh, <laughs> sure. 
you know, I I have to I have to bet that I'm a bit cynical and people just pull in black holes. Um, you know, I know they exist. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, they're somewhat used like magic, right? You know, oh, uh, magic. Right. Oh, let's bring in a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the math doesn't work. Right. We, we always tend to bring the black yeah. hole and, you know, that sort of magically yeah. uh, correct everything. So, so I want to go uh, back to Pluto. And this is, this is really a cold place, right? Something like 40 Kelvin? Uh, correct. And, and so what, does, what do we know about the composition? Now, I would imagine with the New Horizons, we have a much better feel for what exactly is in there. Indeed. So at those temperatures, not surprisingly water ice acts like rock yeah um and nitrogen the gas that we breathe here on earth uh the dominant gas that we breathe uh on earth 80 percent of our atmosphere is solid it's an ice mm -hmm. but it's an interesting ice in that it is actually denser than water ice at those temperatures. And so water ice actually floats in nitrogen ice. Yeah. Also, the nitrogen ice flows more easily. It's less viscous. It's more runny. Mm. Now, you mm. maybe say, well, wait a minute. Ice, runny, ice is solid. <laughs> but of mm. course, if you wait long enough, it will flow. That's what glaciers flow. And mm. indeed, you can sort of think of nitrogen ice being a bit like silly putty. If you take silly yeah. putty and you, you, you make it into a ball in your hands and then put it on, on a table and wait 20 minutes, it will have flowed out onto the table. And so we know mm. that a nitrogen ice acts uh, like silly putty. And so the big heart shape that you see on Pluto that we discovered as the New Horizons was approaching Pluto, very warming to see the heart on the sun-facing side of Pluto. We it's not it's not an ET leaving. Yeah, a right. Or anything exactly. Like that. I mean, you know, anthropomorphic. <laughs> we have to we have to invent stuff. But anyway, it's a glacier, and it's a glacier yes. of nitrogen ice, and we've now yeah. found out from New Horizons flying by that it's actually convecting. It's turning over the way a soup, a bowl of, a, 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 a pan of soup would be turning over on your stove. You heat it from below and you get these convection cells. And the same is happening on Pluto. This big um, uh, glacier called Sp Sputnik Planitia, obviously named after the mm. Sputnik um, uh, spacecraft launched by the Russians. Yeah. Uh, it is a big glacier with convecting ice. And so that's telling us that water, uh, sorry, that um, there's heat below heating up this uh, nitrogen ice and turning it over. And mm. um, there are chunks of water ice that are floating in that nitrogen ice. So, wow. Oh, it, yeah. wow, indeed. Not what one would have expected. <laughs> yeah. So what's the heat source? Is it uh, nuclear? Is probably it, not so, much. So, you, yeah. you know, there probably is very limited amount of uranium and, and, and thorium and so on inside. It's probably yeah. mostly um, leftover heat. 
um, from formation. So when you form a planet, you have chunks of stuff coming in and that kinetic energy of chunks banging into each other um, generates heat, gravitational potential energy, if you like, um, that is, is as stuff convec gets um, accumulating. And um, the question is, why isn't it cooled off? And what we're learning, and I'm just hearing about this fairly recently, recent meeting, there were some discussions, that yes. um, some of the materials in the lower ice layer um, may be um, sort of keeping the heat in. So they act as a, a, um, uh, a form of insulation to, to keep the heat in. And that then mm. um, is driving that leftover heat, if you like, is then driving this convection. Not that it takes a whole lot to do this, mm. um, but it's interesting that um, we're learning that the exotic chemi chemistry of these ices that um, could be sort of semi-organic ices that could have formed the the, um, the Kuiper Belt objects um, can turn out to be um, a bit like polystyrene uh, insulators. Hmm. Right. So, so if, if the water ice is floating on nitrogen ice and nitrogen ice has viscous movement, uh, would we see the geography changing? Uh, is it that that's right? So what we see, the first thing we do when we look at planets is we look for craters, impact craters, because mm -hmm. that tells us, is it a fresh surface or an old surface? If there are a lot of impact craters. You say, yeah, that surface has been around for a long time. It's got battered. So think of our moon, not had a lot of yeah. geology in quite a long time. And it's battered like heck all over, except for the Mare, where there has been uh, and we can date those Mare um, volcanic activity that has sort of flattened it out and, and a few less craters than other areas. When we look at Pluto, the um, Sputnik Planitia, for example, has no impact craters. So it's relatively fresh. And so we're talking a turnover time for the convection of on the order of half a million years or so, or million years or, you know. Um, yeah. So, so, so no, he, that removes yeah. all the impact craters. And, and although we don't actually, in the same way you don't see an actual um, uh, glacier moving, uh, you can see the consequences yeah. of it. Right, right. Yeah, so, but, but we, won't, we won't pick up any, any measurable things in human scale, human time scale. No. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. Few places do yeah. you see geology <laughs> on a human time scale. Uh, right, right. It would have been nice if it happened on Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, so the other interesting thing about the the New Horizon mission I found very interesting. Uh, it, it it has an instrument that is uh, created by students at University yes. of Colorado. Very proud of this. Yeah. So here at the University yeah. of Colorado, we um, are very proud of not only having students do the grunge work, um, but we also give them the responsibility of being involved in designing, building, testing, and operating, um, not in fact just instruments on satellites, but whole satellites. Um, we've had a student um, run it, 
things in Earth orbit. But we have this yeah. instrument on New Horizons, which is a dust detector, and and uh, what it counts um, the dust that it impacts. So as New Horizons was going out from Earth to Pluto and beyond, uh, it had this dust detector pointed in its ram direction, its direction of motion, and any hmm. dust that it, it hit would be detected and counted um, by these uh, little detectors that would then send the signal back to the Earth. Now, we're not yeah. talking huge amounts of dust out there. It's not like hmm. the Hollywood movies where, you know, the actors <laughs> in, in, in the Hollywood movies go through the asteroid belt and they're sort of fighting off left, right, centre, anything that's coming towards <laughs> them, right? No, it's not like that. Yeah. In fact the dust detector would get maybe three or four hits a week. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. And they're really small, really small. right? Micrometers. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, space is empty, but <laughs> the existence and counting of these dust is really important for us to think about the, um, the occasional collisions that happen in the outer solar system, particularly in the Kuiper belt. And it'll be the dust detector that tells us when we get to the edge of the Kuiper belt because those dust detections will drop off um, drastically when we get to the edge of the Kuiper belt. And so we're counting counting those dust particles as we go. Yeah, yeah. Extremely interesting mission. We seem to have learned a lot uh, from it. Um, well, what the investment... Uh, do we have other ideas of... Uh of another mission back in that into that region yeah well there's there's um a lot of things being thought about and proposed and yeah. ideas going on um some people want to go back to pluto and go into orbit some people want to go to other objects and see compare pluto with the other large um kuiper belt objects um it's tough to do these missions hmm. um hmm. they cost uh, a billion dollars which sounds a huge amount of money but if you divide that by 350 million people in the U.S., that's a cafe latte per U.S. Um, <laughs> person. And so, you know, it's it's I think it's worth every penny because I, I you know, I've given 50 public talks, 50 professional talks, yeah. and 50 public talks. I added up the numbers the other day and um, <laughs> on Pluto. And I tell you, the kids just love Pluto and if it yeah. gets them to do their math homework, oh my golly, it is mm. worth every single penny um, mm. of the money we spend. Um, so there are people proposing at this. We proposed to do New Horizons. It was a competed mission. There are the competed yeah. missions that people are proposing. And we'll see. There'll be a, a competition where people write the proposals and they'll be reviewed and evaluated. And at some point, NASA will make a selection and say, this is the next place we want to go. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, we will take a quick break, Fran. And when we come back, we'll talk about a bigger thing, Jupiter and uh, its Indeed. Moons. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.
www.sbscreative.com So we are back. Uh, Fran, uh, we, we've been talking about uh, the New Horizons mission to, to Pluto. You have been uh, equally involved with another mission to Jupiter, uh, the Juno mission. And uh, you have a paper um, on this. So uh, I was reading through Juno mission is revealing that our solar system's largest planet is a fantastic cyclone festooned world with a strange interior. Uh, so again, from a timeline perspective, uh, when was Juno launched and uh, when was the first uh, flyby? So Juno was launched in August of uh, 2011. Yeah. And um, it arrived at Jupiter on the 4th of July, <laughs> 2016. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it was coincidence, but we all celebrated, of course. <laughs> yeah, so Jupiter... Uh, is such an amazing thing. So uh, before we get into the details, uh, details of the planet, um, it, it, sometimes it's called a failed star, right? So it, it is not big enough. It doesn't have sufficient amount of hydrogen to really trigger that, uh, that fusion reaction to go to, to become a star. What would have been the Earth's status if Jupiter were a little bigger it actually became a star? Well, it would have to be about 20 times bigger. So it's an awful lot bigger. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, Jupiter is 320 times the mass of the Earth. Yeah. It, it had nearly 11 times the size of the Earth. So yeah. It's a really big planet. And the pressure at the center of Jupiter is, um, is, is 50 million times the pressure of the gas in, in our atmosphere. Hmm. And that's a lot of pressure that com compresses hydrogen and turns it into a liquid metal, yeah. a bit like mercury, very dense. But it's not enough to cause the fusion reactions mm. that would make it a star like the sun. Okay. So um, if it, if, if, I don't know whether or not you can have an object like Earth survive in a double star system. I suspect the orbits are such that it would get kicked out. It would be mm. hard to survive. Not so much the temperature. Yeah. Because of course um the gravitational it's more an issue yeah. of the gravity and the yeah. and the fact that you would have two two bosses, if you like, you'd have the star and the Jupiter star fighting out <laughs> right, right. pulling pulling you in in multiple directions and i think that would be unstable and right. kick the kick the planet out yeah okay okay yeah so so that it's it's almost like the the right size for us it also acts sort of like a vacuum cleaner out there right protecting the earth a little bit well i think that jupiter in the earlier stages did a lot of scattering so scattering yeah. of stuff out to the kuiper belt scattering of some stuff inwards to the inner solar system mm. um but it what it's done is it's scattered the leftover pieces of the solar system formation to the point where you now have fairly stable asteroid belt between mars and jupiter and a fairly stable kuiper belt uh, out beyond the orbit of neptune so yeah. um in some ways it 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 does indeed suck up and get get hit itself. So many people maybe remember the big impacts that happened in nineteen 
94 when we had uh, Shoemaker Levy 9 bombarding right. um, Jupiter, broken up comet. It was pretty small. Yeah. Um, but I think Jupiter does do does indeed um, pull in some of the leftover junk that's lying around out there. Right, right. So is Juno actually in orbit around Jupiter? Indeed. Juno, um, this past Sunday, a couple yeah. of days ago, did its 30th orbit of Jupiter, uh, flyby of Jupiter. So it has this orbit that is uh, a 53-day orbit. Mm. And so it goes in very close to Jupiter, spends only two hours going from pole to pole, skimming yeah. over the clouds, and then uh, it spends a long time, the rest of the 53 days, going all the way out to 100 times the radius of Jupiter, uh, sending data back to the Earth, and mm. getting ready, and then we plan our next flyby, comes zooming in, does another flyby. So um, these long orbits are actually quite useful for planning and digesting the material of mm. each flyby. So it is designed that way so that we have, we have that data transmission time? Yeah, it, it's, it was, it's a little longer than we originally planned. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and there was maybe some concerns about firing up the engines to shorten the orbit. Um, but we ended up in what's turned out to be a, a, a very good good one for this combination of having time to digest the material from one flyby before um, we get ready for the next one. Right. And Jupiter is, is really big, right? Sometimes it's, it's difficult to sort of imagine it. Uh, 11 times the diameter? Yeah, about 11 times yeah. the size of the Earth, uh, 320 times the mass of the Earth. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a big, big, big object, and it's mostly gas, right? Uh, yeah. Does it have a core um, or, or so solid the, Yeah. Yeah, this is the big question that Juno was was intended to set out. So as yeah. I, I said in the first half of our discussion, we have this theory that Jupiter formed as a huge snowball, twenty mm. times the mass of the Earth that formed out beyond the snow line, beyond the orbit of Mars. And um, then, because it was big and massive, it sucked in the hydrogen. And hydrogen being so abundant, there was a lot of it, and it sucked in a lot of it. So, you know, 300 times the mass of the Earth of hydrogen. Yeah. And so um, we had this idea that we would go and test this idea of planetary formation by measuring the distribution of mass that's inside Jupiter. And we do that with a very clever technique. We, we watch the spacecraft and measure its motion using the Doppler shift of the radio signal. So yeah. just as um, the uh, Doppler shift of a um, police radio cam radar <laughs> measures <laughs> right. the speed, the Doppler shift associated yeah. with a speeding car, um, we measure the Doppler shift of the speeding Jupiter, Juno, sorry, as it goes over Jupiter, mm. and its perturbations of Juno's motion uh, that we measure with these radio signals sent back to Earth that tell us what the distribution of mass is like inside Jupiter. Mm. And we've learned that, indeed, it does not have a simple, distinct core, just well, like yeah. the textbook draw. Mm. It's actually fuzzier boundaries, and that mass, 
that heavy elements that form the core are more mixed up with the hydrogen um, extending further out, maybe 40 or so percent of the radius instead of down in the inner 10 percent of the radius. Mm, okay. So if you if it had a solid core, I don't know the physics of it, but I would imagine it would have uh, it would have spun at a different rate than the gas, right? So would that create some sort of a magnetic? Um, ah. Um, Ah, yeah, I, I like your I like your thinking. It's not quite <laughs> quite the way it works. So yeah. so you have a core inside, and it, even if it's a mushy core that spreads out, right? But the majority of the volume of Jupiter is uh, out to say five percent of the outer radius, down to forty percent, is mm. me liquid metallic hydrogen. So. Mm. Think of hydrogen as a gas where you have one proton, two protons together, each with an electron. So yeah. two protons, each with an electron, bound together in this molecule. Now, what right. happens when you increase the pressure a lot, so a million mm. times or two, three million times the pressure of our atmosphere, you end up converting that hydrogen into... Um, separate protons and electrons. So mm. the positive protons and negative electrons can move relative to each other. Mm. And this is liquid metallic hydrogen, yeah. which is electrically conducting. And so now you have a liquid conductor. Mm. You have some heat from the interior driving convection. And you okay. have a bit of rotation, quite a lot of rotation in Jupiter's case. And you have the three essential ingredients of a dynamo, a magnetic dynamo. <laughs> so in the Earth, we have liquid iron in the uh, core of the Earth that is yeah. liquid. It's conducting. It has heat driving its convection. We have a bit of spin. We have a dynamo inside the Earth. And we know yeah. this is true also of Mercury, of Earth of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Those are the planets that all have magnetic fields, yeah. as well as one moon, Ganymede. <laughs> ah, okay. It's own dynamo. Okay. Ganymede is, uh, uh, is Jupiter's moon. So it's the largest moon in our solar system. There are four big moons, the yeah. moons detected by Galileo back in 1610, yeah. Eo, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And then there are, I think the last count was uh, 79 moons of Jupiter. I think that's the right <laughs> number up there, big number. Right, right. And, and Europa, uh, in comparison to Pluto, um, the, the biggest one is Ganymede, uh, you said. So what is the size of that in comparison to Pluto? Well, um, Europa is about the size of our moon, as is okay. Europa. Sorry, yeah. as is Europa and, and Eo, about the size of our moon. Ganymede's a bit bigger. Yeah. Callisto, sort of in between. Now, um, for Pluto, you could take Pluto and Charon, put them side by side, and they mm. would be about the size of the moon. So Pluto is, yeah. much, is, is smaller. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay, okay. Now, you know, the, this uh, red spot on Jupiter has been a fascination for forever. Totally weird. Um, <laughs> totally weird. Uh, so, so with Juno, I think we have a much better look at that, right? Do we have a better feel for 
um, I mean, it's sort of a hurricane or, or something that's going on for centuries, right? Yeah. Do, do, do we know more about it? Well, it's really strange. We, you know, Voyager got a really good view because Voyager could sort of s- stare at the yeah. Great Red Spot and watch it going around. Um, and uh, what we've seen, and it's about twice the size of the Earth at the time of Voyager, okay? So you mm-hmm. could put two Earths side by side to give you the size of this big large oval uh, storm gyrating around, uh, circulating every six days. We knew that from Voyager. Yeah. Now, when what we've been doing with Juno, we only got one really close flyby over the top. Hmm. And uh, But we've had other observations. What we've noticed, and ground-based observations of the Earth using telescopes and Hubble and so on, have told us is that the Great Red Spot has been shrinking. Hmm. So instead of being twice the size of the Earth, it's now about one and a half times the size of the Earth. Oh, that's and, a big change. <laughs> yeah. So over yeah. a period of you know 40 years, it's been getting smaller. Um, and it will disappear at 2050 if it keeps going like this. So, oh, wow. yeah. you know, what's going on? And, <laughs> you know, yeah. will it break up? Uh, will it um, just get bigger again? You know, we don't know. We're going to have to keep watching it to find out. Yeah. Can we, so given the data uh, from Juno, can we now sort of model the, the, the dynamics um, of uh, of Jupiter. Well, we're getting some very important information, and and the yeah. way we do this is by looking at a different wavelengths. We look. Yeah. We use microwave detector, which is a really key measurement that tells us the amount of heat that's coming from the inside. But it also, as everyone knows, water absorbs microwaves because that's how you heat a cup of tea. You put mm. some water in a cup and you microwave. Turn on the microwave. And the water absorbs the microwaves that are in the your microwave oven. Now, if you have microwaves coming from the inside of a hot Jupiter, which is what is happening, you yeah. can measure as you fly over the amount of microwaves at different wavelengths, and it tells you the distribution of water in Jupiter's atmosphere. Okay? Mm-hmm. It also turns out that ammonia, which is a very important uh, um constituent of the atmosphere also absorbs microwaves and so by looking at different wavelengths we can measure the distribution of ammonia and the distribution of water in the atmosphere of jupiter and that has been really revealing Mm. so we thought going in and this is what i taught for 25 years in my intro astronomy classes that jupiter's atmosphere had a top layer of ammonia clouds And we knew that because we could use astronomical techniques to say, yep, that's ammonia clouds at the top. And ammonia condenses at the lowest temperature at the top of the atmosphere. Then we said, okay. Because of gravity? Yes. uh, Just a quick question. So because of gravity, uh, the atmosphere should be pretty close close to the surface, right? Or, Or does it extend? Surface? What surface? Uh, the, it doesn't have a surface, it doesn't but have a surface. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it it won't go too far out, right? Because it has great a lot of gravity. It has a lot uh, of gravity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, it turns out that the gravity at the top of the clouds is not all that different than the gravity uh, that we feel here walking on the mm. surface of the Earth. Maybe a couple of okay. times more. So it's not. Yeah. 
It's not huge um, because it's a big planet, right? So you've got yeah. a lot of mass, but you've also spread it. You're, you're quite high up. Um, so, so it turns out that the scale height, the distribution of gas is not too different in Jupiter's atmosphere than it is on the Earth. So the sort of separation between the clouds, it's, it's a bit larger than Earth, but it's sort of more or less the same sort of idea. You have layers. Mm -hmm. But unlike Earth, where you have one layer of water clouds and then you have a surface, at Jupiter, you have a layer of ammonia clouds at the top. Right. Under that, you have a layer of this mixture of ammonia and sulfur, ammonia hydrosulfide which is sort of probably is a one of the contributions of the redness of the of the atmosphere and then mm. below that is the water clouds and right. that's the sort of view we've had these three distinct layers of clouds at, at mm. Jupiter now what we're finding with Juno is that indeed it's much more complicated there's a lot more deep convection going from below the water clouds up through the water clouds, ammonia clouds up. And, and so there's more mixing. <clears throat> Yet again, when you look closer, things get fuzzier. And right. so there's, there's not simple distinct layers. There's more of a, of a mixing of the atmosphere and the convection, uh, mixing of water of ammonia. And and you end up making these huge hail store hail balls, um, mm. that are we call them mush balls, which are a mixture of ammonia and ice, which mm. is really bizarre. But um, they're sort of the size we think probably of a softball, something like that, and a right. large cricket ball, if you like. And <laughs> um, these uh, um, fall then down. Uh, yeah. Because you know, as they get bigger and bigger, they'll begin to fall down, just as they the hail storm hailstones do here on Earth, and then they go deeper. So you got a much, it's a much more mixed up atmosphere that extends quite a long way down into Jupiter um, than we thought. And it's fundamentally driven by solar energy. No, not in else? that's okay. excellent hmm. question. No, turns out that Jupiter emits. Two and a yeah. half times more energy than it receives from the sun. So this mm. is the heat that's deep inside, heat of formation of, of this big 320 times the mass of the Earth object. That mm. primordial heat um, is what drives the convection for the dynamo, but also what drives most of the convection of the atmosphere. And mm. so it's less driven by sunlight, more driven by internal heat. Okay, okay. I want to talk uh, quickly talk about Europa a little bit um, because of this interest uh, of possible life there. Uh, do do we know anything more from the Juno mission? Juno has does not go very close to Europa. Um, if yeah. we put in an application to have extend our mission, well, our prime mission ends um, next year, and we put in an application to NASA to to have it extended for another five years which will give us an opportunity to fly closer to, uh, as, the, as the orbit evolves, as we get closer to the, the moons, including Europa, and we will get a closer view. Um, yeah. and, it, and it will allow us to get some sense. Maybe the microwaves will help us to find out. So the key things about Europa is that the Galileo mission to Jupiter revealed a couple of things. One thing is that it showed us 
that um, as we flew by, there was a perturbation in the magnetic field that we measured, Jupiter's magnetic field, that told us that there are electrical currents that are flowing deep inside um, Europa, most likely in a liquid ocean underneath the ice layers. Hmm. So the images suggested there were cracks, places where some sort of brown gunky stuff seems to be coming up and, and yeah. covering the surface, uh, places where there are cracks and, and dimples, uh, places that look like icebergs and so on and so forth. Um, but that ice is really thick. We think that mm. ice is somewhere um, between 10 and 20 kilometers in thickness. And then under that, we have a huge ocean, a three times the amount of water than, than in the Earth's ocean. Um, but mm. it's quite deep down there. But right. but there is heating, and we think there's tidal heating, um, resonances between EO, Europa, and Ganymede, drives the volcanism on EO, just completely bonkers volcanism on EO. <laughs> uh, but the mm. same tidal heating heats up um, Europa and could be uh, driving volcanic vents underneath the ocean that could be bringing nutrients to a water, a warm water environment, just like mm. there are in the uh, in the earth. We have these black smokers, these volcanic vents deep in the ocean. And it, there are some ideas that that is where life uh, could have formed on the earth. And so mm. um, there could well be in the ocean of Europa some forms of life. We have no idea. Could it be charismatic megafauna like whales? Or is it, <laughs> you know, or is it just bugs, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, we don't know. Is that brown stuff whale poop? Or is that brown stuff <laughs> bugs? I Maybe. mean, you know, algae. Um, whatever yeah. it is, it'll be very interesting because it would be a life form that evolved separately, probably separately uh, from right. the Earth. And uh, it would be fascinating to find out what that sort of life is. Uh, and so there is a NASA mission that will go to Europa. It's not launched yet. It should be launched in a few years. Um, and um, it will go to Jupiter, go into orbit around Jupiter and multiple flybys, say 40 flybys of Europa and make detailed measurements and give mm. us a good clue about the composition, the structures, maybe some sense of the thickness of the ice. And then we hope later to that'll tell us where do we go to send a lander to scratch and sniff the surface and tell us what the brown gunk really is <laughs> right yeah so so in conclusion fran um if you look forward five ten years and you you want to allocate whatever limited resources uh, that the world wants to put into uh, these types of missions um, going out to uh, planets uh, in the in the outer parts of solar system, how would you allocate that? Uh, just very approximately, what what would be sort of your first uh, first and second targets? Well, um, this is my own personal preference. My I think yeah. the first priority should be Uranus or Neptune. Neptune mm. is is much harder than Uranus, so let's go back to Uranus. Voyager just did flybys of Uranus and Neptune and gave us one glimpse of these two um, outer gas giant planets. And yeah. they're very different from Jupiter and Saturn. They have a lot of uh, more water. They have methane and ammonia and so on and so forth. It'd be very interesting to see what they're like inside. 
Uranus is tipped on its side, so it looks like mm. it probably had a big impact fairly late in its life. How strange. Really? It has a very <laughs> weird magnetic field. So mm. for me, a top priority would be to go back to Uranus. Um, we'll see. And indeed, there's a... Um, I'm involved in a survey of the what do we do for the next decade in planetary systems. But I also want to yeah. mention something else, which is to go to Venus. Venus is in the inner solar system. It's our neighboring planet, mm. same size as the Earth, basically. And yeah. it has no magnetic field. So I'm, I don't have a you know vested interest in it. No money in this game. But... Lies, well, yeah, well, in the <laughs> yeah. clouds, there was this idea that there yeah. could be life yeah. in the clouds. I find that very unlikely. More importantly, okay. why does it have a runaway greenhouse? Why mm. is it like a, a hot oven? Uh, in fact, a broiling oven in on the surface um, and uh, a totally different atmosphere, totally different geology. Um, why is our neighboring planet so different? I think we really, really have to go and find out. Um, and learn about runaway house, runaway greenhouse before we do this to ourselves. Great, great, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Fran. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Pleasure. And good luck with this, uh, all these missions. Good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.